please turn with me to John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. You can also read along on page 8 of your bulletin. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is the word of the Lord. Pardon the uh, electrical issues that we're experiencing this morning. It's an old building. And so uh, we're, just bear with us uh, with the heating issues and the electricity. Uh, we're certainly going to get that addressed, hopefully this week. Um, uh, we are uh, heading into a new series, and uh, it's, it's Lent. It's the Lenten season. And that Lent is, is, a, is really an ancient word for spring, and it connotes renewal. And so as comes back into our world, really what the season is about as, we head in towards, uh, as we're heading towards Easter Sunday is it's a period for Christians throughout history to really experience a, deep, a deeper sense of God's presence, a deeper sense of prayer, uh, and really understanding, again, who is Jesus and what did he do and why was that so important? Why was that so important for our lives? Now, uh, we're going to be looking at several passages throughout these next several weeks uh, that on exactly that. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And we're going to be journeying all the way to the cross on Good Friday in just a few weeks. Now, we're going to begin by looking at John chapter 6. We just read it. And it's a famous narrative. It's where Jesus walks on water. And that's, that's verses 16 to 21, but we need some context. And so if you turn all the way to the first part of chapter 6, the first 15 verses of chapter 6, we have the most famous miracle in some ways. Uh, it's written in all four of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but the author, John, he never leaves miracles alone. He never leaves them to stand alone. So there's always a teaching to explain the miracle before the miracle in the book of John or after the miracle. It always happens. And that's what you see in verses 25 all the way to the end of the chapter. So you have Verses 1 to 15, that's the actual miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Verses 25 to the end of the chapter, that's the explanation of the miracle, the teaching of the miracle. Jesus says, I am the bread of life there, right? Verses 16 to 21 is sandwiched right in between. And you have this storm. The first part of the chapter, everyone's filled, everyone's satisfied. Verses 25 to the end, Jesus talks about he who satisfied, he who satisfies, I am the bread of life. Between the miracle and the teaching, there's suffering. There's a storm. And through this narrative, we're going to learn three things about Jesus so that we can find comfort in the storm, so we can find poise, so we can find courage in your storms. Who is Jesus? The person of Christ. The power of Christ. The peace of Christ. The person power, the peace of Christ. First, we're going to look at the identity, the person of Christ. Verses 16 to 18 says the disciples went to a lake and they set off for Capernaum and it was dark and they were alone and a strong wind comes and they were three and a half miles out so the waters were deep and you have these crashing waves because of the wind and so the waters grew very, very rough. It was a storm. But notice the text doesn't say they were afraid in the storm. They were terrified in the storm until Jesus approached. In verse 19, Jesus is walking on the water, and it says, then they were terrified. These are fishermen. They were in storms before. They've been in storms. They know what danger is. And danger, when, you, when you're out at sea in your boat, it's scary. They should be terrified. That's a natural occurrence that's predictable in a sense. You know you're in trouble. But when they saw Jesus approach, this is not natural. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, this was not natural. In the storm, this is supernatural. This is otherworldly. 
This is completely set apart. We call that being holy. Holiness is what? To be set apart. And then they were terrified. And what does Jesus say to them? Verse 20, he says, It is I. Don't be afraid. That Greek phrase, it is I, is ego me. It's translated, basically what he's saying is, don't be afraid, I am. I am. Don't be afraid. It's the same phrase in the Old Testament when Moses, tremendous figure in the Old Testament, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush in the book of Exodus, God says, Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Later, Moses says, suppose I go to your people, suppose I go to the Israelites, and they ask me, what is his name? What is the name of this God of yours? What should I tell them? He says, this is what you're to say to them. I am sent me to you. And what that means is, there was never a time when I ever was. There's never going to be a time when I will be, I am, what I am yesterday, today, tomorrow. Always the same. I am unchanging. I was never created. I always was. I always will be. I am. I'm totally sufficient. I'm totally complete in myself. In me, you can be complete. As God who set apart God is holy. God is unique. Moses' response, when he sees that fire, when he hears God's voice, he immediately grasped that set-apartness of God. And what does he do? His response is he hides his face. Here you have the disciples. They see Jesus approaching. He's walking on water. They see him. Never mind the storm. This is the true storm. Never mind the terror of the storm. This is the true terror. They saw the power of God in the storm. They saw the true danger in the storm. This is the true power. This is the true danger. What does that mean for us? For a lot of us, Jesus is really just a moral teacher. If you're honest with yourself, you look at Jesus, he's just a religious leader to you. But you see, a moral teacher, a religious leader, they'll never terrify you. They'll never be able to terrify you. You know why? Because if Jesus Christ is only your teacher, listening to him is your choice. You can always walk away from him. If Jesus Christ is only just a leader in your life, following him is a mere choice. You're the one that's in control. You see that? Right? But if Jesus Christ is king, if Jesus Christ is God, it dawned on the disciples that just like Moses This is dangerous. This is totally set apart. This is the real terror. Never mind the darkness, never mind the wind, the deep, the dark, the storm. This small storm is in front of the true storm that was approaching them. Did you know that? When God appeared before uh, Mount Sinai, when he descended on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, There was terror, there was darkness, there was gloom, there was storm. Here the disciples, they realized they were standing in front of the true storm. And he says to them in verse 21, don't be afraid. And they immediately take him in. They immediately take him in. Rudolf Otto, famous German philosopher in the early 1900s, in 1917 he wrote a book. It was a seminal piece of literature. It was a book called The Idea of the Holy. This is a German philosopher, secular philosopher, writing about what holiness is. And basically in it, he says that the numinous, the holy, it produces, you know something is holy when there is an attraction and a fear. They're together, like a fire. We're attracted to fires. Fires are beautiful. They're bright. They're warm. But you never want to hold a fire. You can't hold a fire. Why? Because you know that if you get too close to a fire, you'll be burned. If you get too close to fire, you'll be damaged. Your flaws, your finiteness in front of a fire, you're going to get consumed if you get too close. Fires are beautiful on one hand. That's why we all want to gather around. There's a sense of warmth that comes with a fire, and yet, if you get too close, you get burned. You get damaged. That's what holiness is like. 
That's what Rudolf Otto says. That's what holiness is like. You see, we're drawn to that which is holy, which is why we're drawn to beautiful people. It's why we're drawn to powerful people. It's why we're drawn to just wanting power. It's why we're drawn to wealth. But when you come too close to people who are so otherworldly beautiful, right, on one hand we're attracted, it brings out a sense of inadequacy. And there's a fear of getting too close because if you get too close, you're afraid it's going to put you down. There's a sense of insecurity and uh, inadequacy around holiness. That's why we avoid getting too close. There's a risk involved in getting too close. The disciples, they wanted to get close to Jesus. They were attracted to his teachings. They were attracted to his miracles. They were attracted to his power. But when they came close, when Jesus was approaching them, they saw his real power. They saw this is not just about teachings. This is not just about miracles. This is not just about the the warmth of being around Jesus. They saw his real power and they saw the danger of that. They saw him as he really is and they were terrified. It exposed all their inadequacy. It exposed their pride. Why their pride? You don't see it in this passage, but all the other, uh, in in the gospel uh, according to Mark, the gospel according to Mark in chapter 6, prior to the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples, they had just returned from performing miracles. They were, they were doing wonderful things. And it says that they were actually talking about, they were sharing with Jesus everything that they had done. And so there was this pride. And Jesus, seeing the 5,000, he asks the disciples, well, I want you to feed them. And the disciples, they become indignant. They rebuke Jesus. They become indignant and they say, you know, how are we going to be able to, a year's wages can't feed these people. Right? It wouldn't be enough to feed these people. So what does Jesus do? He takes a very poor boy's pauper lunch and he uses that lunch to feed everyone to the point where they're fully satisfied. Everyone was satisfied except the disciples. In Mark chapter 6, in the midst of the storm, it says, they had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing with respect to the bread, and their hearts hardened. They were confused about Jesus. They were upset. They felt slighted by Jesus. See, on one hand, we're built to be intimate with God, but on the other hand, we've been created with freedom. And we chose to live for ourselves. We chose to build ourselves up on our own strength apart from our Creator. And so what we said was we want to be our own Creator. We want to be our own king. We want control. But you see, you don't have control in life. We never had control in life. And now, in the storm, the disciples realize they don't have control. And they're in the presence of the real creator, the creator of the storm, the Lord of the storm. And life all around them is violent and chaotic, and it's a storm. Now they feel inadequate. How does this play out? Think about this. If you think back to the first time you ever came to a church, the first time you were at Metro, for instance. Most people here, when Metro first began, they they fall into one of three types of people, one of three categories. A lot of people feared, because it's been a long time since they've been in the church, a lot of people feared how they'd be received. Other people feared that they would get hurt at some point. They open themselves up to people, they get close to people, and then they get disappointed. Right? They've been damaged before, and they feel that they might get disappointed. Some people fear that if I commit, I may have to give up my life. I may have to give things up. In each of these cases, what's at the heart? Control. We want control over our lives. We want predictability. We want certainty in our lives. The disciples realized that the person that they need in the boat is all-powerful, all-wise, controls even the water. He's the creator, and so he also demands from us our trust, our purity, our maturity, and he really loves, he really cares. And so he says, do not be afraid. True love gets in. True love interferes. True love gets wet. True love is risky. We love to hear that side of Jesus. We love to hear the teachings about that quality of Jesus. But true love 
gets angry. Absolute, true love gets angry. Any person, any, any parent would understand this. When you see somebody you love who's damaging themselves and damaging others, you can't just sit back. If you truly love that person, you wouldn't just sit back. If you see somebody damaging themselves, hurting themselves, and hurting other people in the process, it angers you. Why does it anger you? Not because you dislike them, but because you love them. And you love those other people. Your love is actually going to be proportional to that anger. And here are the disciples in a storm. That's a rage, you see. True love speaks into you. True love demands. True love challenges you. It even lets you suffer. If you're a parent, sometimes you know that as much as you don't want your child to hurt, they need to hurt. You, if you could do anything in your power to take away an illness from your child, you would take it away. But you know sometimes they need to suffer illness, ride it out because it helps them to get stronger, right? Sometimes you know your children, uh, they're going to make some bad decisions in their lives. Now, we want to get into their lives. We want to control every decision they make. But sometimes you have to let them make those decisions. You know why? Because that's the only way they're going to learn. It's the only way they're going to grow, Sometimes you know they're heading into suffering and you kind of warn them, but you have to let them make the decision because that's the only way they're going to mature. That's the only way they're going to increase their wisdom, increase their character. Here's Jesus speaking words of power. He says, I am. But equally, he says, don't be afraid. Look at the wisdom of Jesus. Look at the power of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the rage of Jesus. Look at the grace of Jesus. Only a creator could do that. Only a God could do that. Only I am can do that. Only I am can on one, in one way, on hand say, yes, you are totally flawed. And that's why you're in a storm. And yet, bring you complete peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of suffering. That's the person of Jesus. Now, the second point here is the power of Jesus if you look at verse 17, the disciples, they got in the boat, and it's dark. And there, in verse 18, you see strong winds just pounding. Waters are pounding on them. The waters grew rough. It's a storm. That's almost a perfect metaphor of how we view our lives. That's how we should view life in some ways, right? I'm going to explain that in a bit. But first, what's the purpose of a storm? What's the purpose of being in a storm? Storms, what do they do? Storms reveal, look, here are the disciples. They're skilled. They're wise when it comes to being out at sea. And yet, they're in this overwhelming situation. Because when you're on a boat in the middle of a lake, three and a half miles out, you don't know what's down there. There were psalms written about the Leviathan that resides beneath the sea. You don't know. We still don't know what's down there, you see. And so, if you're in a boat in the middle of a lake, three and a half miles out, in complete darkness, and the wind is strong, and the waves are crashing, that's when you realize how helpless you are. That's, gospel according to Mark, he's telling us, what's Mark telling us? That's our condition. We're helpless. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how intelligent you are, we're helpless. Storms take away any false sense of security that we have by showing us how much control we really have, and we don't have much. Look at the disciples. They're strong. They're skilled. But no matter how skilled, no matter how strong, no matter how intelligent, no matter how wise you are, absolutely minimized, absolutely negated in a storm. That's a true storm. Some of us have suffered real storms in our lives. Some of us are in a real storm. Our storms show us how alone we are, how uncertain life is. Our storms show us how unpredictable life is. Our storms show us how uncontrollable life is because in real suffering, in a real storm, your skills do not matter. That's why it is a storm, because your skills can't overcome it, you see? In a real storm, your skills don't matter. Your wealth doesn't matter. Your intelligence doesn't matter. Why? Because most things that really matter in your life cannot be purchased, cannot be earned. You cannot purchase your health. 
You cannot purchase your youth. You cannot purchase intimacy, real intimacy. You cannot purchase safety. You cannot purchase security. You cannot purchase certainty in life. Anything that matters is negated by your storms. It's, it's kind of uh, challenged in a storm with the things that matter, and your skills are negated. The only thing that matters in life is your relationship with God. That's the only thing that keeps you away from being truly alone. The disciples are in trouble. They were alone. And actually, the author actually states that Jesus wasn't there. They were alone. And when they were out in the storm, in the dark, three and a half miles out with the winds blowing, that's when they realized they were truly alone. And yet, when, Jesus, when they saw Jesus walking in the water, that's when they were truly terrified because they were standing before holiness. Now, why is that? In 1 Kings chapter 18, you see Jesus walking on water here, right? 1 Kings chapter 18, you have this narrative. Uh, it's a pretty famous narrative. If, you, you know, if you've read the Bible in your life, uh, you have God's prophet Elijah uh, against, going up against the prophets of Baal. And it's a pretty famous narrative if you've grown up in the church. On each side, they set up their altars. And they were told to call out to their God. And the prophets of Baal, they're calling out to their God. They set up their altar, come down in fire, and they're calling out to him. And there's silence. So after a while, they start to cut themselves. And they're bleeding and they're slashing each other. And there's silence. There's no fire. What does Elijah do? Elijah takes, uh, uh, he fills up his trough of the altar with water. Kind of... um, counterintuitive when you want to fire, right? He fills, and it says to the point where the water is to the brim and it's, fill, it's overflowing. So this trough in the altar is filled with water and he calls out to God and it says the fire of God comes down and licks up all the water. That's what it says. Why? Why the water? It's because Baal was the water god. Baal was the water god. Baal was the god of rain. He was the god of thunder. Psalm chapter 29, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Water was always regarded as uncontrollable. Water was always regarded as chaotic, the enigmatic, the uncertainty. Uh, And so uh, the ancients always wrote about the waters in enigmatic terms. They kind of worshipped the water because they didn't know. They couldn't control it. Ever since the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, what do you read? The Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Complete control. The Spirit of God speaks over the waters. Your voice thunders over the waters. And in John chapter 6, when Jesus is walking on water, You see this throughout. John chapter 2, he changes water into wine. John chapter 6, he walks on water. You see complete control in a storm. Complete control over the seas. Complete control over the waves. Complete control over the wind. True power on one hand. True courage. True poise on the other. Jesus is arrested. He's standing in front of Pilate. And what does he say to Pilate? Pilate, who has the control, seeming control, of life over death. He stands before Pilate, and what does he say? You would have no power over me if it has not been given to you from above. In the face of death, amazing power, amazing poise, amazing control, self-control. In the boat, the disciples are terrified. Here's Jesus. So controlled, he walks on water. Control over the seas. Control over uncertainty. Control over unpredictability. Control over the uncontrollable. And what does he say? I am true power. Don't be afraid. True poise. Have me in your life. And no matter the storm in your life, no matter how turbulent, no matter how nasty, I can bring beauty, I can bring order, I can bring peace to your life. 
Look at the power of Jesus. Look at the poise of Jesus. Look at the control of Jesus. Look at the peace of Jesus. When you encounter God, you can't demand things on your terms, on your own terms. There's a purpose for the storm, really, to bring you into greater intimacy and relationship with God. That's really the purpose. Your storms are designed, no matter the storm. I can say that unequivocally. Your storms are designed, no matter the gravity of the storm, to bring you to greater intimacy and trust and relationship with God. But you don't understand how damaged I am. You don't understand how much pain I'm in. You're right. But God understands you. God understands pain. God truly understands pain. God understands loss. God understands the most devastating loss, the loss of his own child. God understands. In chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And that, what that means is whether you are in need, when you, whether you are hungry, whether you are dissatisfied because you lack things in your life, whether you are suffering in a storm, I am all sufficient. I am complete. I am. You can be complete. I am so complete, it can make your incompleteness complete. So sufficient, your inadequacies wrapped up in me become adequate. That's what he's saying. Powerful. And he knows you so intimately. Our God knows us so intimately on one hand, and yet he loves us so unconditionally. He knows all of our inadequacies. He knows all of our flaws, and yet he loves us so unconditionally. Remember, he could have easily said, I know your hearts right now. I sent you out in the storm, and I know your hearts. They're very hard. I should leave you, know, I should leave you here to die. That's what he could have said. That would have been gangster. I mean, he would have walked all the way out there to say that to them, right? But that's not what he does. He says, I am. He says, I am. Don't be afraid. In other words, I'm here. I'm present. There was never a time when I was there for you. I'm here. There never a time when, oh, I'll be there for you. I'm here. With me, we're always today. We're always here today. You see that? Take me in. Sometimes you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until you realize that Jesus is all you have. The disciples, they're not, they weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't seeking after Jesus. They weren't repenting. There was no indication that at that time they were in repentance mode. But he still came to them. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus seems very, very distant. But what this passage tells us is he's actually a lot closer than you think. A lot closer. Their hearts very, very hard because they're proud, and yet this storm humbled them. This storm broke them. This this storm softened them, and they took Jesus in. And in verse 21, they reached the shore. It's an amazing text. What what it teaches us is if you focus on your own skills, if you focus on your own strength, if you're relying on your wealth and your intelligence, remember Dark Knight Rises? Remember the movie Dark Knight Rises? There's a storm coming. What will you do? One day a storm will come that will show you how it will overwhelm you completely. And it will show you just exactly how underwhelming you are, how inadequate you really are to take in, to really sustain what really matters in life. And that means, when that happens to you, that means you didn't really take him in. You have to trust the Lord. Then you will never be alone. You have to trust his word. You have to trust his power. That means you have to trust his wisdom. You have to trust his timing. You have to trust his purpose. You got to take him in. This passage is almost the perfect metaphor of our lives because we all live in the dark. We're all, can you tell me what even the next five minutes are going to happen? What's going to happen in the next five minutes? Can you tell me what your next hour is going to even look like? You think it's all going to be the same. You know, if I tell you anything about my life, 
we thought, we, my family, when we first immigrated to the United States, we thought we had life all planned out. I mean, me meaning I was just born, but our family, we thought we had it all planned out. My father was an engineer. My mother was a nurse and a professor. And they were going to come here, make a living, go back, right? And, and return to the, uh, a greater status, greater power. Overnight, everything changed with my father dying. He was murdered right here, right by Temple University. Can you tell me what your, even to, what your tomorrow looks like? You have it planned out, I'm sure. Some of you have it planned out. Most of you, you're type A people. You have most, most of you have your days planned out. But can you tell me that it's going to go exactly as you planned? You don't know. This passage is a metaphor for our lives because none of us live with certainty. None of us live with control. Control is a myth. It is a deception. Certainty is a myth. It is a deception, you see. Is anybody here omniscient? Is anyone here omnipotent? No. We are all helpless. So what do we do? What we do is we try to make sure that we have the right things in our boats to get through the storms of life. We prepare for the storms as best as we can. We think, if I can just have this in my boat, then I'll get there safely. If I could just have wealth in my boat, then I'll get there safely. If I could just have status in my boat, if I just have a good reputation, if I have that in my boat, then my life will go smoothly. Will it? Are you sure? Are you certain? Do you think that your status is enough to handle the weight and pressure and suffering that, that life will pound on you like a storm someday? Do you think that that's enough? Do you think the combination of all those things will be enough? Do you? Guy Maupassant, famous French author. What does he write on his epitaph? I have taken pleasure in everything and found joy in nothing. What do you have in your boat? What do you have that you've stored up that you say, if I can just have this thing, then I will be safe. Then I will be anchored and I'll be safe, no matter the storm. We try to get all the right things into our boats to improve our lives. And that's how many of us come to Jesus. We think that if we just come to Jesus, Jesus will help us. If I just pray, read the Bible, go to church, do the Christian thing, then that'll be enough. And Jesus then kind of owes me, in a sense, and to give me a good life. I'm using him to really supplement my life. And he's got some wisdom and there's some teaching there and good things. If that's the way you, I mean, we don't really say that, but if that's the way you're living your life, right? You're not really going to him as all-powerful. You're not really going to him as all-wise. You're not really going to him as omniscient and, and omnipotent. We think that if Jesus just helps me get wealth, helps me get status, helps me improve my reputation, get power, then I will hold up in the storm. No. No. None of those things matter, you see. None of those things matter. Who gave you your job? Who gave you your spouses? Who gave you your children? You think you gave yourself children? You should look at science. You should look at it. Ask my wife. We've been trying to have children for years. I run a camp for children. You'd think that we would just have children. Who gave you your children? Who gave you your house? Who gave you your job and your career? Who gave you your intelligence? You think you acquired your intelligence? You were born with that, friend. You think you chose that? Who gave you your body? Who gave you your looks? You think you earned that? I guess some people can earn it today, right? You think you earned that? Who gave it to you? None of those things matter, you see. You have to take him in. Look to his power. Only he has control. How do you get him? How do you take it in? How do you take Jesus in? Where is the peace? That's the last point. Storms reveal who Jesus is. It also reveals who we are, right? That's what we just said. We're powerless. Ultimate power, and we are powerless. We thought we had control. We don't have control. We thought we had power. We're powerless. 
By the way, that's why we crave beauty. It's why we crave wealth. It's why we crave degrees. It's why we crave status. We want holiness. We want to be holy while avoiding holy. You see? You know how, you know how holy God is? In the Bible, they, have, they don't have superlatives. In the Bible, in our language, in the English language, you have uh, pretty, prettier, prettiest, right? We have superlatives. By looking at the word, you know which level a person is. She's pretty. Oh, she's prettier. She's prettiest, right? The Bible doesn't have superlatives like that. They do it by repeating, right? So if you call a person's name, you're just calling them. But if you call a person's name twice, that is emotive content, strong content. God is referred to as holy, holy, holy. You see? Superlative holiness, supreme holiness. We want holy. We want to be pretty. We want to be wealthy. We want control. We want power. And yet we're doing that and we're trying to get that without coming to the holy, holy, holy. That's what worship is, by the way. We end up worshiping these things as a result. We end up, you see how powerless, you see how pathetic our lives are? If I can have status, if I can have wealth, then I will have power. And you end up becoming a slave to your wealth. You work to the ground for your wealth, you see. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life, meaning that wealth is not going to satisfy you anyway. It's not going to give you all the things you really need in life. Your health, a good family, it's not going to give you that. It doesn't guarantee any of those things, you see. We want all these things. We want the holy. We avoid the holy and, and these things give us a sense of control. They give us a semblance of power. We're thi- we think we're self-sufficient because, uh, you know, think about it. You think you're self-sufficient because you're in a relationship? Because if you lose that relationship, what happens? You're powerless. There's a darkness there. There's a darkness. There's a storm. Storms reveal what you really trust in, what you really want in your boat that you think is going to take you to safety which you really rely almost as a cover over your inadequacy, over your helplessness. But think about this. In the Gospel according to Mark, at least in Mark's version of this account, it says that Jesus, because the disciples, their hearts were hardened, Jesus sent them into the storm. He sent them there. It was intentional that they went into the storm. And what does that mean? It means sometimes Jesus puts us in storms. Sometimes Jesus intends that for us. Sometimes Jesus sends us into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, we're hungry and we're thirsty. And what does he do? He fills us. Other times, he sends us into the darkness. He sends us into uncertainty. He sends us into the storm. There's this chaos and this uncertainty and you can't control that. And God seems so distant in those times. The disciples thought, I could rely on my skills. I can rely on my strength. They were proud. And that's the exact reason why we were in there. But in this passage, it's the first narrative. You know what happens in this passage? When they take him in, in the gospel according to Mark, at least his account, this is the first account where the disciples actually get down and they worship Jesus as God. It's the first recorded account where the disciples actually worship Jesus. We see that in the book of Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew. Why? It's because up until this point, they merely witnessed Jesus' power. Up until this point, they merely saw Jesus helping other people. Other people were experiencing the greatness. Other people were experiencing the power. And they saw that, you see. But they were still relying on their own abilities. There was a pride there, a deep-rooted pride. This is the first time that they experienced Jesus being all-sufficient for them. Up until this point, they saw him filling people. They saw him satisfying people. They saw him healing people. They themselves were doing that. And yet, this is the first time that Jesus saved them. You see that? With the 5,000, they saw Jesus, who Jesus was for other people. It's like when you hear a sermon 
and the sermon is really for you, but you say, oh, I know somebody who could really do well by hearing this sermon. It's like that, kind of. Up until this point, they saw the sermon for other people. This time, it, they took it in. It was for them. The truth about who Jesus is, the truth about themselves, the reality of who Jesus is, it became real for them. Keep in mind, Jesus doesn't say, guys, don't be afraid because I, know the we- I checked the weather and it's going to clear up. He doesn't promise them that the weather is going to clear up. In fact, there's no indication, really. Uh, you know, there's some implication there, right? But he doesn't sit there and say, uh, you know, God under control, guys. You know, the weather's going to end. Waves are going to calm down a little bit. That's not what he says. Storms reveal who we are and what we cling to. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am sufficient. I am complete. I, I'm not just powerful. I am power. Where do you think your power comes from? Right? He says, don't, don't be afraid. I'm really rich. I am richness. That's what he's saying, you see. Psalm 59, you are my refuge in times of trouble. Take me in. Always in control. Why does he send you in the storms? No matter the storm. And I don't want to diminish anyone's storms. I don't want to diminish anyone's suffering. But I can assure you, it's not to end you for sure. Even death is not intended to end you, you see. He wants you to see who he is. Will you plunge your fears? Will you plunge your inadequacies? into the powerful and terrifying and holy and wise presence of God who loves you and cares for you unconditionally. Now, some of you say, but I've never seen God show up. I've been suffering for a very long time. God never came into any of my trouble. He never was my refuge. And what you're really saying is, here's what you're saying. You know, I prayed to God for help. He never helped me. I tried really hard to obey. He never lived up to his end of the bargain. I served really, really hard. But God never answered my prayers. God never served me. God, he's been disappointing at best. I mean, if God is so powerful, why didn't he answer me? Think about this. Is it logical to say that if an all-powerful God exists He needs to answer my prayers and my demands. Is that logical to you? And if he doesn't answer my prayers, then he must not exist? Is that logical to you? That there's an all-powerful God, and if he doesn't answer my prayers, then he must not exist? Is that logical to you? Is that even intelligent to you? If you submit to the possibility of an all-powerful God, then you must submit to the just remote possibility that he's wiser than you too. You must submit to that. Jesus sometimes puts us through storms so that we might lose some things. Jesus sometimes puts us through storms so we might lose all things, but that we would gain him, you see. Storms reveal anchors, things that you're tethered to, what you have in your boat that's going to keep you from sinking, what you have in your boat that's going to save you, that's going to rescue you. That's what you know, the things that we just said, the things that we think are going to save us, we end up becoming slaves to. We end up worshiping them. We end up serving them. In ancient times, people used to pray and they would make sacrifices to these little idols that are made of stone and, and wood and silver and gold and bronze. And so if your crop's spoiled, you know, or if you get sick or if you can't have children, then the God of the harvest, the God of health, the God of of commerce, or the God of fertility failed you, essentially, and you're disappointed, right? These things are idols. Today, you don't have idols of stone or of wood or of silver or of gold, but we make idols out of our wealth, out of our looks, out of our families. What you have in your boats make you feel like you're in control, but the storms remind us we're never in control. And we're completely inadequate. And so they reveal what we're carrying in our boats with us. The Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3, he says this, I consider all my skills, I consider all my status, I consider my credentials a loss 
He had everything. He had status. He had a great reputation. He had titles. He was pedigreed. He had a tremendous education. But it made him anxious, and it made him angry, and it made him bitter. Bitter to the point of allowing and perpetrating murder. That's the Apostle Paul. You see? That's what it did. Philippians chapter 4, you know what he says? I've learned what it means to be content. I've learned what it means to be content. A contentment that endures all suffering, he says. You know why? Because he untethered himself to those things. He says those things are rubbish. The actual word he uses is crap. Those things are crap. He's tethered. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in the storms, in his suffering. He's tethered to true power. Never sink. That's his certainty. That's his peace. And Jesus, he handles each storm differently. Some storms, there's a passage of the Bible where he shows up and there's a storm, and he says, peace. He was sleeping, and the disciples wake him up. Don't you care about us? And he says, peace. Literally he says that, and everything calms down. There are other storms. He's going to ride it out. This storm keeps on, but he shows his power through it. He reveals their pride in it. And what that means here is that being a Christian does not mean your storms are going to come to an end. It doesn't mean that. But it means you can have courage in a storm. It means you can have peace in a storm. On one hand, when Jesus becomes all you need, you become less anxious, less neurotic, less of a control freak, less angry. Because you realize you've been trying to fight God all your life for control, and you can't. Rather, you need to submit to God. Surrender to God, obey God, trust God who loves you and cares for you. Your parents tell you, I want you to live like this. You know why? Not because they hate you. It's because they love you. They know what's good. They've been through things in life. They know. You see? You see that? You've been trying to fight God all your life. Storms show us, they make us humble. And so on one hand, you become less angry, less neurotic. On the other hand, because you're suffering this storm, you don't have to be saccharine about your life you don't have to be fake about your life community groups aren't about come together and say well you know just pray for my exam you know pray for my pray for my work you know we don't have to be saccharine about our lives we can pray about the things that actually matter the fact that i'm single and it's bothering me the fact that i can't bear children and it hurts me the fact that you know i'm worried about my future I'm really worried about my future. I'm worried about my place in life. You can share about these things. You don't have to be saccharine about your life. You can be real. On one hand, you're going to be poised. You're going to be more calm. You're going to be trusting. On the other hand, you're going to be more real because you're broken, you see? Because you're broken and you're, you feel helpless at times. And what happens is you become more humble. You become more courageous. You become more compassionate. You become more wise. Some storms say, he says, peace. Other storms, you feel really alone and he comes to you. But no matter what, the main storm that, he said, that we, we could have suffered, Jesus suffered alone. On the cross, there was another darkness. There was another gloom. There was another earthquake. There was another storm. And Jesus suffered alone. And he didn't say peace in the midst of the storm. In fact, he emptied himself of peace. He didn't say power in this storm. He emptied himself of his power. He was completely overwhelmed. He lost control. The wrath of God is just pouring out, pounding him like waves. And he drowned in God's wrath, you see. People were mocking him. You know what they said to him? They said, if you truly are God, in other words, if you really are I am, come down. End the storm but he remained silent. He remained silent. You know why? Because he didn't work. He didn't come here to show us how powerful he was through his strength. He came so that God could work through his helplessness. 
And so, yes, he suffered the nails. He suffered the crown of thorns. There was definitely a storm. There was a physical storm. It was dark. There was an earthquake. But it was nothing compared to the ultimate storm of God's wrath pouring out on the cross. Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, never mind the earthquake, never mind the darkness, never mind the gloom, never mind the physical storm. I have lost my father, my power, my love, and now I'm in the real deep. Now I'm in the real darkness. Now I'm in the tremendous, the real gloom. Now I'm in the ultimate storm. Jesus Christ, who built his life perfectly around God, tethered to God, anchored to God, and now he used to say, I and the Father, we are one. Tethered to God, tethered to the Father. But on the cross, he lost his Father. And so he lost his anchor. He lost his tether. He was broken. And now just the waves are pounding on him. Now he's facing the true darkness, the true gloom, the true storm, the ultimate terror. And why? Why did he do that? Jesus Christ lost power so you can have power in him. Jesus Christ endured the holy wrath of God so that you enjoy the holy presence of God. And do you know he still trusted God? He still said, my God, my God, my God. He still trusted to the end, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy to the end, to the death. Even though God is silent, even though he's suffering, even though his body was torn, his, his soul was broken, his heart was broken, he died to pay the penalty of our sins. Jesus Christ trusted God in the midst of all that, completely abandoned him, was doing it for his good. And so he was reciting the Bible on the cross. Did you know that? Psalm 22, he was reciting scripture on the cross. Jesus Christ, perfectly righteous, suffered the ultimate storm for you. That's why you know that if you're suffering storms right now, God is not punishing you. He's not doing that to punish you. It's so that you could look to see Jesus approaching in your storm. And you don't have to be afraid. That's real safety. That's real security. That's real peace. There's an old children's song that goes like this. It's a children's hymn, really. It goes like this. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Smile at the storm. Smile at the storm. With Christ in my vessel... I can smile at the storm until he guides me home. Let's pray.